Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you everybody for coming out tonight. This is uh, sort of part two of this lecture series that Deacon asked me to give uh, that he entitled The Weeds of Heresy. And if you saw the first part, I kind of looked at that metaphor a little bit and how sometimes uh, the weeds are difficult to differentiate from the wheat, especially if you look at uh, what darnel or cockle actually is, and also the tendency of the seeds to be hard to distinguish when you've threshed, and sometimes they recur planting after planting, because you can't fully eliminate them. And in the last talk, we did some of the early basic heresies. We talked about the Ebionites on the one side, um, who held for a fully human Jesus that was in no way divine, the human son of Joseph and Mary. And then on the extreme other side, uh, the Docetists, like Marcion, who held that he was divine, but that the human nature was entirely illusory. You can see two opposite extremes, but they're also somewhat uh, simple errors, like all man and in no way God, all God and in no way man. And as we get into uh, the later centuries, the errors become a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more subtle, but also therefore more divisive because they look more like the wheat. And so I wanted to continue going today on some of the uh, errors that are also things that you will continue to see even to this day out there in the wild. We noted last time that that's a particularly difficult issue with sort of the post-confessional age, as we call it, that a lot of people who are Christian don't even align with any particular denomination anymore. They're just Bible-believing Christians as opposed to Methodists or Anglicans or Lutherans. And those churches might have defined positions on some of these key issues like the divinity and humanity of Christ or the Trinity, but a lot of people are just opening the Bible and starting from square one. So that's why this has a perennial relevance, because guess what? It's not the easiest thing to interpret, and some of the errors that people made starting from square one back in the day are being made still today. So uh, it's a useful tour. It's not just historically informative or where our creed came from, that's part of the goal, but it's also things that you can dust off and use just as effectively today as people did 1,800 years ago. So we picked up, we ended up with Marcion last time, and uh, so we have uh, uh, kind of the place I left off with is that this is giving us some of the remote background to the Council of Nicaea. Even though Nicaea is uh, a couple centuries later, 325, some of, the some of the heresies in the first century of the church nonetheless uh, are attended to and spoken against even in Nicaea. They, they're, they're clearing, and this is the first ecumenical council. If you count Jerusalem as the zeroth, you know, the 50 AD, the Council of Jerusalem, uh, but this is the first one after that. So there's a long period where there has not been an ecumenical council. So even in the very first article of the creed, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. You already see this opposition to this dualist notion that there's one God that's in charge of the spiritual realm and another God that's in charge of the material realm, and that these are somehow in conflict, that philosophy that was driving docetism. Uh, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made in heaven and on earth, uh, and that he indeed came down and was incarnate and was made man, that he truly took flesh. Uh, so he is both the one God who made all things and truly became a man. Two statements that want to oppose in one fell swoop the earlier opposed errors that we talked about last time. So today we're going to look at uh, 
some other heresies. Some of these errors have different names. If you're actually studying this in more historical books, you'll see sometimes uh, there'll be several different names mentioned because, you know, it springs up by people reading the scripture independently and making the same mistake. So sometimes it's called Noetism after Noetus of Smyrna. Uh, sometimes it's associated with Praxius, who was Tertullian's opponent. And sometimes you'll see it tied up with Sibelius and therefore called Sibelianism. Uh, but if a, you want to strip it from someone's personal name and give it a generic name, people usually call it modalism. Uh, so, so what is it? Um, we'll see it recurs even in our day um, in the so-called oneness Pentecostals or Unitarians, but it's basically a theology which says uh, that God is one, okay, it's correct, <laughs> and they're so into the oneness of God that they affirm that to the exclusion of any threeness, that they uh, say there is no distinction between persons except that of name, that Father, Son, and Spirit are simply three names for the one, as you might put it, but they wouldn't, unipersonal God. The example I like to give is the same person can be my cousin, my neighbor, and my friend. And if I say, Bob, my cousin, and the man next door, I don't mean anything plural about him. That is the one and the same numerical individual who is one and the same person, and in no way three, even though I have three names for him, Bob, neighbor, friend. Does that make sense? In the exact same way they conceive Father, Son, and Spirit. And so uh, that's maybe, maybe some of you know this. This is where the Unitarians come from, is that it's opposed to Trinitarian, uh, because they did not believe God was in any way three, but entirely one. It even has more names than this. Sometimes they're called Monarchians, which sounds like it's tied up with kingship, but it's not. Um, Arche can mean leader, or it can mean principle. So when you talk about a monarch, you mean one leader, but... In this case, they were so focused on the oneness of God as their central principle that they affirmed it to the denial of any threeness. And that, I pointed out in the first talk, is part of the difficulty with these heresies. We often think of heresy as, you know, somebody erred because they affirmed this and it was wrong. That's part of it, right? They have to. But really, more often, what's going on is not simply what's affirmed, but a lot of the heresies that we deal with in this subject matter go wrong because they don't affirm some other aspect of the mystery. That is to say, they kind of fail to affirm sometimes the other biblical texts or the other revelations about Jesus and synthesize them. I think it's Honoré de Lubac who likes to say something like, all good theology begins in apparent paradox. And that is very true with some of these statements that you get. He's God, he's man. And if you want to take the simple and easy but incorrect way out, you end up making some simple partial affirmation at the expense of some other truth about Jesus. In this case, they're affirming the unity of God. Great. We're not polytheists. Thank you, Jewish monotheism. But they don't think that there's any genuine threeness of any kind. In fact, uh, modalism in its brief time of prominence poisons the term person for about 100 years in Western theology. I don't know if you know that. Now it's the term that you and I use all the time for what's three in God, three persons in the one God, yes? Um, and the technical term in Greek we'll get to later is hypostasis, but for a while this term was verboten because, uh, you know, forbidden because this was tied up with modalism. Why? Uh, a persona, I don't know if any of you know Latin, uh, from pair and sonons, literally something that a voice sounds through, was the word used to describe like a mask in, in Greco-Roman theater. You ever see like the comedy and tragedy masks? And so just as one actor, because they don't have a huge, you know, cast, would uh, put on his Zeus mask, and now I'm Zeus, do a little scene, go off stage and come back and you know, now I'm Demeter or somebody else and hold up a different mask and interact with the audience in a different way. Uh, this was how the modalists conceived of Father, Son, and Spirit. There were three names for the one deity, and when did you use one versus another? Well, depending on how God was interacting with you. Yes, whether it's as creator or maybe primarily in the Old Testament, we call him father. But when we see him in Jesus, we call him son. When he's, I don't know, the enlightener or the sanctifier, maybe we call him spirit. But the modalism, the modus part of it, comes from the Latin way, 
just Father, Son, and Spirit are three ways to describe how God interacts with us. So when Bob and I have a real estate transaction and a boundary dispute, he's my neighbor. When we go to a family reunion, he's my cousin. And when we play poker in the evening, he's my friend. But in no way are there three distinct persons, Bob, cousin, and friend. Does that make, does that make sense? So uh, that will be, uh, there's a lot of detail in terms of things we're not going to talk about tonight, but if you could do in your own reading, uh, mutual misunderstanding, <laughs> either between orthodox parties and heterodox parties, or orthodox parties and other orthodox parties. Uh, sometimes it, it I, I take a whole month to get some of my Christology students through this, just the settling on the terms and making sure everybody is on the right page and understands what each side means when they say this or that, that took quite a while. Uh, we're not going to get into the, the murkiness of this person using this terminology in this way, but I do want to flag, if you ever wonder why a lot of the early uh, texts are talking about substance and hypostasis, but not your friendly old person, that's why, because a modalist used it first. And so it was kind of tainted until modalism died down and everyone in the Latin West was happy with person again, because the threat of modalist misunderstanding has pretty much vanished by the time you get to the fourth, fifth century. Does that make sense? So this is a more challenging error. Uh, unlike the Ebionites or the Docetists, we're into properly Trinitarian terrain. How do we define what is one in God and what is three in God? We need some technical terminology here. And that's one of the challenges. Sometimes people become frustrated, or I've met folks, uh, maybe they lack a theological or a philosophical background. I was in class with one person uh, who's sort of frustrated one day, this is upper level class in Trinity, and he said, why do we have to use all these terms of the philosophers and terms devised by men? You know, why can't we just stick with basic, simple, biblical revelation? Because yeah? sometimes it does make your head hurt. Uh, and I thought the professor did a, did a very good job saying, well, the, the whole reason why these terms were thought up were not to vex students, but rather in order to clarify and defend the statements of Scripture, to make sure everybody understood precisely what everyone was talking about, they developed these technical terms, not to get around the Bible or away from the Bible, but precisely to expound the right way in which to take biblical statements about the Father, Son, and Spirit, and how they're all one God, but nonetheless distinct. So this is the beginning in responding to this kind of heresy, where we're going to start to see language historically like substance for what is one in God, which sounds really weird to the modern ear, because when we think of substances, we think of like, like solid stuff we can kick. Uh, but that meant, you know, to the, to the ancient Greeks, something a little bit different. Uh, it, it referred to an individual of a certain nature. So it signified something of a certain kind and that it was numerically one. Uh, and then hypostasis will become the term as we call person, and then terms to describe how these persons are related, that the relationship between them is being begotten, and that becomes its own technical term. So it's really in responding to modalism on the one side that a lot of the impetus to the language that becomes used at Nicaea starts. You've got to get a little bit more technical in order to explain what's the matter with this error. Does that make sense? It's the same in any science, right? You can talk about water and get along every day just fine, but if some important business comes along about water, then all of a sudden you have to distinguish, well, do you mean fresh or salt, and do you mean H2O or all the other stuff that's in it? Is it distilled water? Is it water with a certain, you know how scientists can get all the way down into like, what's its molality, and pH and molarity and all of that. Same thing here. When we want to talk about what is three in God, we get some technical terms coming. Now, any error, in Trinity is going to have immediate impact for Christology. And so they're often tied up together, they're best studied together, and so too with modalism. If there's no distinction between persons, right, that the Father is the exact same thing and no way different than the Son, who's the exact same thing and no way different than the Spirit, uh, then, as Tertullian realized pretty early, we have some immediate consequences. We're all comfortable as Christians saying that Jesus died on the cross. Even go further and say, the word of God died on the cross. But in Tertullian's day, as in ours, nobody says, at least I haven't met them, that said God the Father died on the cross. Have you heard that? I have not. The Holy Spirit was incarnate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Nobody says that, right? 
But uh, Tertullian, who is, you know, a rhetorician, makes up a funny name for them, calls the modalist praxeus the patropassian, somebody who maintains that the father suffered and died. Well, why does he say this? Because it's the logical conclusion from modalism. If there's no difference between the father, the son, and the spirit, and the son takes flesh, suffers, and dies, well, then you also have to say the father takes flesh, suffers, and dies, because they're no different. Wherever the son is, the exact... If I said Bob came to my party, my cousin came to my party, and my neighbor came to my party, well, if one came, the other two came, because they're all the same dude. Yes? So, too, uh, it's a nice example... You know, Tertullian knows, of course, that this is ridiculous, which is why the name stuck and we remember it like 1,700 years later, because nobody in the early church would say that the father suffered and died. But it's a logical consequence of modalism. So, um, it's a nice example of what we sometimes call the sensus fidelium, the sense of the faithful. And everyone, you know, heard that, well, these people have to affirm that the father suffered and died would go, yeah, that's not what the Christian faith has ever said. Something's wrong here. Even if you can't put your finger on it just yet, you know that something's wrong if your theology of the Trinity leads you in this direction. Um, This view, of course, causes immediate problems for Christology. Uh, Jesus speaks in many places about his relationship to his Father, coming from his Father, proceeding forth from his father, returning to his father, doing the will of his father. And even if some of those statements we could say, well, that's the humanity relating to the divinity, others cannot be explained away like that. So, so what is Jesus doing in the flesh if he's not really in any way distinct from the father? Is he just talking to himself? It would be like the same person in the example going, Bob, what do you think? Well, neighbor, I think that... You know, <laughs> Unless he's caught up in a rather bizarre kind of soliloquy, uh, maybe it's multiple personality disorder or schizophrenia. Uh, something's plural there, but that usually means your mind is a little bit fragmented. Yeah? So either he's lying, or uh, how do we make sense of things? When Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, no one knows the Father except the Son. Okay, so maybe he knows himself. What about John 14, 16? I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Is this just an elaborate way of Jesus saying, I will pray to myself, and then I will give you through me another counselor that will be with you forever? These things can quickly become absurd if you take a look at the biblical statements about Father and Son. Um, Or, we will come to him and make our home in him seems irreducibly plural to me, yeah? So have to account fully for all of the biblical data. Um, oh, this is my point about the census fidelium. Have you, have you heard this term before, sort of the sense of the faithful? Basically pointing to the instinct that the faithful often have for uh, what sounds legitimately like the faith they have received and what sounds a little strange. It's not an infallible sense. It's not a... Uh, you know, uh, side route around magisterium, but you've probably all had this experience where you hear somebody making a somewhat novel or unusual theological claim, and you go, it just doesn't sound right, as opposed to, like, interesting idea. You go, I mean, it rings wrong. I don't know what, quite what's the matter with that. And this is a, a common pattern where you have, I mean, most times when you have a council, it's because... Uh, an error arises that people did not anticipate. There's a crisis that sort of brews because people are not responding to it immediately and vigorously. It sweeps up adherence, and then there's a need to teach clearly and definitively, but it's typically a responsive action, right? It would be nice if the church could just, in the first century, say, we foresee the following errors will arise in history just to stop them from happening. Not this one, not that one, not this one, not that one. Here you go. There's about a thousand pages of documents. Somebody will think this in the future, just letting you know it's wrong. No. Most times what happens is the error arises. People recognize it as bad, maybe right off the bat, census fidelium, but then the theological explanation for why this is not in you know, conjunction with the historical Catholic faith comes later. Sometimes, you know, get this, we're caught off guard sometimes with, like, the, I look at the whole, like, debates on marriage where a lot of people just instinctively go, yes, of course, it's one man and one woman. 
what is hard about this? And then on the other side, people ask all kinds of questions, generate big movements, and sometimes we on the Catholic side go, yeah, I'll get back to you with a really convincing explanation. It takes a little while, yeah? So too with some of this evolution of theology. Even if most Christians could tell you, yeah, that doesn't make sense. If your theology makes you say that the Father was incarnate and suffered and died, that's messed up. And then you go, well, why? Why is that? Where did I go wrong as a modalist? Maybe that explanation takes a little bit longer to be formulated in precise terms, but it's coming. Um, the thing you need to reject patropassianism, as Tertullian called it, is first a distinction between the three persons which is more than just nominal. You have to have some way of articulating what is distinct between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And second, on the incarnation side, a way to link just one of those persons, the second one, to the body and soul that is Jesus of Nazareth that walks the earth. Yeah? You need the threeness of persons and then just one, the second one, is incarnate and not the other two. That's the critical heavy lifting that your theology needs to do. And the notions that Nicaea formulates of substance for what is one in God and hypostasis for what is three are going to be those terms. It'll be another century and change before that happens, but you can see that it's set up already in the need to respond to this heresy. Does that make sense? So, uh, you're perhaps familiar with the term that becomes canonical after the Council of Ephesus, hypostatic union, as the way to describe the union of the second person in his divinity and the humanity of Jesus in one individual being. Jesus, who is both fully God, fully man, in one divine person. That's a maxim we can keep coming back to to check Christologies. Fully God, complete divine nature. Fully man, complete human nature, in one person. Not a blend, not a part-wise composition, not a mixture. Uh, not God and not man, not man and not God. But fully God, fully man, in one person. Adoptionism is another heresy that we'll see in the second and third centuries. And this one might be easy to summarize as sometimes, instead of the Christian faith proclaiming that God became man, in adoptionism, a man becomes God. It's got itself a little bit backwards. Um, or as I like to tell my students sometimes, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the mere man, becomes super Jesus. He's got now extra power. And we'll see how that... So that's why I like the superman on the actor's shirt. Um, Adoptionism holds that Jesus is born merely a man. Uh, some of them, you know, you can be fine with you as miraculously conceived, virgin birth, or you don't go there. Um, but at some point during his life, and typically it's the baptism in the River Jordan, though sometimes it can be something like the transfiguration, uh, that something happens to Jesus, and this transforms him into someone that is no longer a mere man. This is his moment of divine adoption. And why those two moments? Well, what, what's said at the baptism in the River Jordan from up there and on Tabor, though it's not called Tabor in Scripture? What does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, which they take not as an announcement of something that's always been true, public manifestation of Jesus, but as this just happened. He became my son. Um, and this power that he gets with adoption is what enables him to perform all the miracles. They're also capitalizing on, you know, why 30 years as a carpenter, right? Unless you read Gnostic fables, it doesn't seem that Jesus did any kind of mini parting of the Red Sea. And I've seen, a, I don't want to have any you know, cartoons that are irreverent, but there was one of Mary trying to get Jesus in the bathtub and baby Jesus, you know, he's just standing on the water. Not going in the tub. <laughs> it's like I've seen one of child Moses parting the water in a glass of water in front of him. We don't read anything like this, right? The finding in the temple, uh, he's aware of being in his father's house, but he doesn't work any miracles, right? Uh, so sometimes this capitalizes on the 30 years of our Lord's living at home with his parents, and then all of a sudden, the last three years, all these things, raising the dead and giving sight to the blind. And so... Their explanation for this is that something changes. Though he was just a man for 30 years, at the moment of his baptism, or for some later, Tabor, 
uh, the transfiguration, he becomes adopted, somehow united to God in a special way, and that's what gives him his powers. In Greek, it's dunamis. And so that's, um, that's where sometimes it's called a dynamic uh, monarchianism or dynamic modalism. It doesn't mean that it's vibrant. It means that's what gives him his powers. Some of these folks are modalists, but you don't have to be a modalist to be an adoptionist. But if you're going to do one crazy thing in Christology, why not do another? Uh, so they did, in fact, tend to overlap sometimes. Maybe another way to put it is, think about it this way. We intuitively have a sense that God is in a unique way present in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know your kind of big picture theology, we say that God is present everywhere in the universe by virtue of his knowledge and his power, right? So I can say God's present here, God's present there, God's present here. Uh, we also say that God is present in another way. We just had prayer at the beginning of this. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Right? So he's present in the midst of the praying community. But that doesn't seem to put its finger on the precise way we say that God is present in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Right? If you were to walk into this room in the immortal glorified body, we'd say, God's right there. And we'd mean it in a sense that was different from the first two ways, everywhere by knowledge and power and in our midst in spirit when we pray. You know, so our view of the Eucharist or our view of the physical body of Christ as it walked the streets of Nazareth sees God as intimately united with that human nature in a way that's just not true of God's presence in other modes. Yeah? But a little bit hard to specify, is it not? And that's part of the difficulty with adoptionism. Its relationship between what's divine and what's human in Jesus is really a completely extrinsic one. I mean, when you think of uh, adoption, right, the whole metaphor turns on there's not a relationship of sameness of nature, right? You're sort of adopting someone not of your own flesh and blood. Um, and they conceive of it primarily as a union of wills that, you know, Jesus is given special graces, and in consequence of those, he grows really, really close to the will of God, his Father, and does everything the Father wants him to after that. They're on the same team. They closely cooperate. Jesus becomes eventually unswerving from his Father's will, unlike the rest of us that sometimes don't always stay on the path. But it's a wholly extrinsic understanding of how this man, Jesus, is united to God. Because we can say things like that, right? If we're on some sort of like march to protest, whatever, we can say, we are all one. Yes? And by that I mean in spirit, which might mean in terms of motivation, will, conviction, affirmations. But I'd, you'd say, well, we don't all have the same social security number, that's for sure, right? And you're not also getting my property at the end of this rally. Um, we can mean that in a way that's a moral union without talking about union of person, right? So, too, that's the challenge for adoptionism. Paul of Samosata, uh, Samosata sorry, uh, provides us a nice example. I gave you some quotes. He's one of the earliest guys that we have quotes from. A lot of times we find out about the heretics from their opponents, so it may not be the, you know, you don't copy books of the guys that are on the wrong side, so we get these only later. This is uh, some surviving theses. He wrote, uh, having been anointed by the Holy Spirit, he meaning Jesus, received the title of the anointed, Christos, suffering in accordance with his nature, working wonders in accordance with grace. Doesn't seem so bad so far. For in fixity and resoluteness of character, he likened himself to God, and having kept himself free from sin, was united with God, and was empowered to grasp, as it were, the power and authority of wonders. You can see kind of he wasn't God in himself, but he was so good that he got to have the extra treat of the power of wonders. By these, he was shown to possess over and above the will, one in the same activity with God, and won the title of Redeemer and Savior of our race. He was so good, he got to be Redeemer. It's a little bit like if you're a decent enough Mormon, you might get your own planet someday. Um, Second thesis should be at least manifestly upsetting to most people. The Savior became holy and just, and by struggle and hard work overcame the sins of our forefather, meaning Adam. 
by these means he succeeded in perfecting himself. So this sounds stonkingly Pelagian right off the bat, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> and was through his moral excellence united with God, having attained to unity and sameness of will and energy with him through his advances in the path of good deeds. This will he preserved inseparable from the divine and so inherited the name which is above all names, the prize of love and affection vouchsafed in grace to him. Do you see how that's an image of a man who simply does in this description in a very Pelagian way enough good hard work to be the A student God wants him to be and in consequence of that you get to be the redeemer of the human race. This is a far cry from uh, Orthodox Christology. And it'll even say the different natures, divine and human, the different persons admit of union in one way alone, namely in the way of a complete agreement in respect of will. That's the only way we can talk about the divine and human being united in Christ. This is, of course, potentially something that any one of us might also do. Yes? We get, well, hard work is something anybody could do, and maybe if it requires grace, God could theoretically give it to any number of people. So, um, we'll see this problem of how the divine and the human are united uh, reappear in Nestorius in just a little bit. Um, you'll see this reflected in the Nicene Creed in this way, its opposition to adoptionism. If you look at how the Creed runs, the same one Lord, who is the creator of the world, is the same one who is incarnate and dies for our sins. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. There's no doubt in that formulation that the very same God who made the entire world was present from the first moment there was ever the flesh that we could speak of as being Jesus. The first moment he took flesh, one and the same person was present in that flesh. Whereas in adoptionism, Jesus of Nazareth is a mere man and at some point comes on to team God and becomes adopted son of God and then they're a team after that. So it's the exact reverse. The Christian faith is God becomes man and there's never a time when that human nature born of the Virgin Mary wasn't united to the divine nature. But in adoptionism, man becomes God. Jesus starts a mere man and then becomes the extra special super Jesus, son of God, in an adoptive sense. So he has a couple of problems. One is putting his finger on what is the manner of union between the divine and the human, what we call today the hypostatic union. And uh, like Nestorius, he's going to have trouble articulating how that works out. Now, if you want some proof, there's lots of things we could do just to look at the fathers and all the different things that we might ferret out of the fathers of the early church sometimes teach a class called Anti-Nicene Fathers, where we just take a look at the fathers that wrote before the Council of Nicaea. But just so you know that the early church did have its head on straight, and there wasn't just massive confusion out there, you could take a look at something that is barely in the second century. Uh, St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, he was the third bishop of that place after St. Peter and St. Evodius, as some of you perhaps know, was ultimately arrested during the context of a Roman persecution and while he was being taken in chains to go be fed to the wild animals in the Colosseum, uh, wrote letters to different church communities uh, and greeted a lot of them along the way as they were sort of saying goodbye to him. And we have some of those letters. So these are like just past 100, you know, like maybe 105, something like that. Um, and you can find... Uh, so this is not the biblical Ephesians. This is St. Ignatius' letter to the Ephesians. Uh, in chapter 7, there's a nice celebrated paragraph where he has this little sort of hymn or meditation about Jesus and says there is one physician, right? You know, the Lord is divine physician. And if you look at how it's laid out in the Greek, both of the flesh and of the spirit, both made and not made, in the flesh, God, in death, true life, of Mary and of God, first passable, that means able to suffer, and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the first phrase and the last phrase clearly emphasize to you just one person. But if you look at how he does it in the Greek, every first part of the little comma that comes after 
relates to his humanity, and then everything in the other column relates to his divinity. And you can see it quite clearly in Ignatius' mind, one person, two natures, each having everything properly appropriate to it without confusion, and still there being one but not two Jesuses, but one physician, one Lord. You see how that's sort of set up correctly and without confusion, even in the first century? Now, St. Nicholas punching Arius apparently went viral this Christmas. Um, I've seen a lot of songs and images about this, but here's an icon. Uh, I figure I'll be guilty of it too. Arius is not only a heretic, but he's a heresiarch. He leads other people into heresy. There's only one thing worse than having a disease named after you, and I think that's having a heresy named after you, and there's only one thing worse than being called a heretic, it's being called a heresiarch. Uh, gave you a little bio, but maybe we will uh, speed up and skip over it. But it does have the sad pattern that once you give somebody holy orders, they become a lot more influential. And after his bishop tried to correct him, and the local council tried to correct him, it took an ecumenical council finally to condemn him. But what did, uh, namely the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, so what did Arius teach? And we'll see that several statements of the creed are directed against him. There's two intertwined errors. One is that he denied the true divinity of the word. And the second is that he denied the true humanity of Christ. With respect to the first, he had some slogans. We lose the culture war because we don't have good jingles. Arius had good jingles. There was a time when the word was not. Or to say it another way, the word's not eternal. Or to say it another way still, the word is a creature. In Arius' view, the word was not the second person of the Trinity as you and I understand it, but was the first thing God made. Supremely powerful, preeminent creature. And God tasked this creature with the making of everything else. He outsourced it. So the word is the architect of all creation. God the Father, who's alone in Arius' view, truly God, gives the plan, gives the power to his first creature. And through that creature, everything is made. So, because he's not God, he has a beginning point in time. Another slogan, the Son has no part in the unbegotten, which is his name for the Father. So in other words, the Son has no share in the Father's divinity. Arius would call the Son divine, but you have to remember what's going on in this time in the church. Jewish character of Christianity is really becoming a minority in many places. The Romans consider all kinds of things divine. Zeus, Hera, the Titans, the Naiads, the Dryads, the Emperor. Uh, divine is a very broad term in the Greco-Roman world, meaning an immortal, powerful spirit. So he'd be fine with calling the word divine, but he doesn't mean the same thing that you or I mean by that. He also uh, erred concerning, oh, yeah, it's not an unscriptural heresy. This is a fun one. As you go on, uh, few of these, if any, can be called unbiblical. He had his favorite texts. Proverbs 8.22, the Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. That's how the RSV reads, and I think it's a lamentable translation, because if you look at the Hebrew for create, it's not bara, which is used for how God creates things, ex nihilo. It's kana, which can just as well mean the Lord possessed me. That's a critical difference, isn't it? The Lord had me from the time he started working versus the Lord created me. Philippians 2.6 says of Jesus, before the incarnation, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped in the RSV translation. That sounds like Jesus is down here, the son's down here, and the father's up here, and he goes, yeah, it's too much for me. You're up there, I'm down here that sounds like they're different and that the Son is subordinate and not the same as the Father in terms of divinity, yes? And Colossians 1.15, where Paul says of Jesus that he's the firstborn of all creatures. Well, many of you have siblings. You say, I'm the firstborn of my siblings. That means you're number one chronologically in the set of siblings. So if Jesus is the firstborn of all creatures, Arius reasons. That means he must be number one in the set of creatures, therefore not God. He also denied the humanity of Christ. He took John 1.14 very literally. Uh, when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he considered it in this way, that you had the word understood in the sense we just described, 
plus human biological matter that it animated equals Jesus. Or to say it in another way, Jesus had no human mind, no human will, no human soul, no human emotions, no human passions. There is simply this divine principle, lowercase d, the word, not God, animating flesh taken from the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's a very different view of Jesus than what you or I have. Yes? Uh, now, why do you do this? One thing I think is profitable when we're investigating this, and if you do further reading on your own, only a neurotic person would get up in the morning and say, how do I make a mess of Christology? I'm bored. Uh, there's usually something, I call this the sympathy for the devil, I don't like that Rolling Stone song, but uh, the principle is like, don't just go, well, they're evil, they're wrong, they're dumb, they're stupid, no one has to worry about this. They would have never have gained a following, it would have never been divisive in the church if there wasn't something that seemed more right than wrong in this position to a lot of people. Thomas does this all the time, right? Uh, he'll go through all these objections and then respond to all of them. There's usually some correct instinct or kernel or sea of truth that's been distorted or messed up in these heresies. So if you just go, oh, that's ridiculous, who would ever think this? Keep thinking about it and try to say, well, why? Why would this have been appealing? Because if you understand what leads a heretic to his position, you can better refute it. Does that make sense? So here's some motivations. Arius wants to preserve monotheism. That's first, that's fundamental, right? And one of the things we know about God is that he's one simple, eternal, unchanging. Sort of divine simplicity, we call that. Uh, he is not made of parts. He doesn't come to be and pass away. He's not greater now and lesser than. Immutable, one, perfect being. Well, he doesn't see how to reconcile that with how God can be distinctly three. <coughs> Admittedly, that's hard. Yes? Simple answer. Word is a creature. Spirit's a creature. Problem solved. <laughs> yes? You get out of the difficulty of having to do Trinitarian theology if you just go, I know how, the Father alone is truly God, the other two are not. Done. Back to simplicity. Except for texts like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's not going to let you off the hook that quickly. He also had difficulty trying to conceive of how God could create the many different changing wonderful spectrum of creatures out there and govern them without changing himself, right? The one simple eternal being, how does he act in time? How does he respond to prayers? How does he govern this universe? How is he a provident God? Answer, he doesn't. He made the word, the word takes care of everything. He outsourced the job. The word can change, the word can respond in time, the word can do all this, why? Because the word isn't God. No problem for the word, creatures can change, but the one eternal simple God does not. So by making the word, that's how the rest of the world comes to be. Do you see that thumbnail sketch of why that seems more intelligible to him? Maybe? I mean, it's not fully coherent, because even if the one eternal simple God makes one being in time, ever, doesn't matter whether he makes one or five or ten or fifteen, you still have the same fundamental question, how does the one eternal God act in time without changing himself? And you can do that. St. Thomas will walk you through that if you want to spend some quality time with the first part of the Summa. But Arius cannot see how to do that. So it seems simpler that the one God makes his creature the word, and the word takes care of all that business of creating and ruling and governing and sustaining. This was a common thought. We talked last time about how sometimes popular philosophy influences uh, you know, theology of the church for good or for ill. In this case, in the Platonic world, uh, the eternal realm of forms or principles all becomes put together and architected into the world we know by something the Greeks called the Demiurge. The Gnostics were into this too. And so for Arius, the word is basically a baptized Demiurge. He's not calling it Demiurge anymore, he's calling it Logos or Word. But he's basically taking inspiration from this existing pagan idea of the architect of all creation being a creature, admittedly powerful, very sophisticated, very intelligent creature. Uh, but this has a certain kind of street appeal because people that are into Greek philosophy or Gnosticism already kind of think this way. And so here, we've kind of adapted our Trinitarian faith to terms and concepts which are dumbed down and changed a little bit, but more accessible and more familiar to you. 
voila. You've seen this move before, yes? Okay. Um, likewise for the incarnation. Uh, why would he say this strange thing where the incarnation in his view is just literally just flesh plus the logos? Well, it is one way that's very different. Remember the modalist problem and the adoptionist problem? The adoptionists have this totally extrinsic sense of how the divine and human are one. They cooperate in Jesus after he gets his superpowers. Yeah? Arius didn't like that. Arius wanted to really affirm that the divine and human are uniquely one in Christ in a way that cannot be said of any other mode of God being amongst us. So what he did was have the Logos take the place of what we would consider the role of the soul in animating the human body. Take the flesh, pop out the soul, put in the Logos, voila! It's part-wise composition, but it gets you a unique unity. Does that make sense? So this person alone is the one that God is in, in a way he's not in anybody else. Anyone can cooperate with God, but this body is animated by God. Gets you a neat manner of union. Uh, I call this to my students Franken Christology. We won't go through all the forms, but people are obsessed with this for at least a century and a half. Apollinaris of Laodicea will repeat it and say, okay, he has a human body and a human soul, but why would he need two minds? He just has a divine intellect. I mean, why would you have the dinky sidecar if you had the divine intellect? Yeah, what would you possibly think in your human brain? This repeats, but the other thing that Arius asked himself is, Jesus has this unique feature, right? He doesn't ever sin. That's not true of the rest of us. Heck, even Adam didn't have such a great track record. Uh, people thought a lot about how is it that Jesus did not sin and then later, uh, even further, could not sin. And we'll see this in Arius as well as the monothelites. People are skeptical. Well, if he had the same human soul that you and I have, even Adam, who had an unfallen soul, state of nature and state of grace, both in good shape, messed up in somewhat short order. We know not how long. Solution. Why was Jesus sinless? He didn't have a human soul. He had super soul. He had the Logos instead. Problem solved. This causes problems, right? Uh, if Jesus is not truly a man, all kinds of things go wrong. How can he be our mediator between God and man if he is neither God nor, nor man? He's not, even on, he's not in either side of the equation. He's less than God and he's certainly not man. How can he be our exemplar if imitatio Christi is the centerpiece of the Christian moral life that we want to be like Christ in all ways that he shows us his exemplary humanity? God takes flesh in order to show us how to be man again? Well, if Jesus isn't human, that's a big problem. How can he be Messiah, the son of David, the human heir to a human throne, if he's just a sock puppet? Jesus animated flesh with the Logos moving it around. How can he be our redeemer, the promised offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent if he's not human? Uh, how can he be the suffering servant? How can he say, Father, not my will but thine be done? And we're supposed to imitate that when he doesn't have a human will, and we do. Completely vitiates Christ as mediator and exemplar. So huge problems with this, but maybe you can see a little bit as to why he might think this was important to campaign so hard that he split the church. Nicaea responds with terms that have become the classic way we confess in church all the time, that the Son is of the same essence or nature, sometimes it gets translated, or same substance as the Father. So in Greek it's ousia, and that term is pretty broad before it gets used technically. It can mean something's essence or nature, the essential qualities that make it the kind of thing that it is, is it's ousia. Uh, or in the Latin West, consubstantialum patri, consubstantial with the Father. So against Arius, Nicaea wanted to affirm that the Father and the Son share numerically one and the same nature. Not two gods, but together, one God. And then this phrase we repeat in the Creed, begotten, not made, uh, is a way of defining sameness of nature, yet difference of person. I make all kinds of things, I make mistakes, uh, I build computers sometimes for fun, I make handouts, I do PowerPoint, uh, I cobble things together, but I only beget my children. 
This is a language in the creed that turns on analogy to human fatherhood. That anything we beget is of the exact same nature. I've never begotten a fish or a monkey. Uh, I've made all kinds of things of different natures or uziahs, but I've only begotten something of the same kind as me. And that's what they want to stress by saying that the son is begotten, not made. He's not a creature. He's not the first or most preeminent creature even. He is of the exact same nature as his father, because that's what a son is. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Do you see how that fits in, in opposition to Arius? Only begotten son of the father. This stresses that this relationship is unique. There are other people in scripture called son of God, in the lowercase sense. Adam, the righteous descendants of Seth, the king of Israel. Sometimes the prophets are called sons of God. Uh, the angels are called sons of God. Uh, you and I call ourselves adopted sons and daughters of God. But by snagging this term from John 1.15, we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only son from the Father. Nicaea wants to say, Jesus' manner of sonship is unique. Unlike that of any other being that claims God as his Father. This is how Jesus speaks in the Gospels. Maybe you've noticed this. He says to Mary Magdalene, I go to my Father and to your Father. He'll often say this dual phrasing, your father and my father. It's not that they're two different fathers. One God the Father, except Jesus' mode of being son is different than that of any human being he talks to. He's the son by nature. They're the sons by adoption. Does that make sense? And Nicaea wants to make perfectly clear, came down, was incarnate, and became man. So unlike John that left it at the word became flesh to stress that he really was physical, Nicaea closes that open door and says, yes, he came down, took flesh, and that flesh was not all he took, he took a complete human nature. He was anthropos, human, a man. Is good? All right. Um, I'll leave aside, uh, oh yeah, and we have anathemas. At the end of the statement of the creed, Nicaea, Continues, but those who say, there was a time he was not. He was not before he was made. He was made out of nothing. He is of another substance or essence. Or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable. They are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I will put on the, uh, the website, I brought a, a little listing. The Nicene Creed is not the creed that you say every Sunday. Even though you call it the Nicene Creed, you actually say the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed with filioque, if you're Latin, right? Um, the Nicene Creed is shorter, but I'll, I'll put it, they can post it on the website, I have a comparison side by side. So when Nicaea gets to the third article of the Creed, it says, and in the Holy Ghost, period. Has no statement about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that wasn't the heresy. Arius' stuff was all about the Son, so it fills out the middle article, and there is a Holy Spirit. Yay! Doors left open, of course, to people moving on to areas about the Holy Spirit, which is what happens, but is not going to be our focus tonight. Constantinople has to deal with that. Oh, you just said that the Son's the only begotten one. He's the one that's God from God, light from light. It's unique. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must be a creature. The last guy I want to talk about is uh, Nestorius, in terms of major heresies. I gave you a little bio. First monk, then priest, then patriarch of Constantinople. And he has the unique distinction of being the first heretic in this field of study to affirm the full and complete humanity of Jesus, the full and complete divinity of Jesus. Yay! So where did he go wrong? He goes wrong with respect to the unity of Jesus. For Nestorius, the word is one person, and Jesus of Nazareth is another. And they are very, very closely in concert, but they are not the same person. He's got two natures, two persons. Why would he teach this? <laughs> because he doesn't like franking Christology. He doesn't want something that's part God and part man or a little bit. No. First principle for him is divinity is divinity, humanity is humanity, and Jesus is human. And God is God, and we're not going to mix up and confuse these two in talking about the God-man. He's had enough of that. He doesn't like adoptionism. 
He's not going to say there ever was a time when that human nature was by itself a mere man. Good. Doesn't like the Franken Christology, but he's concerned about the funny way that Christians talk. We say that the Word was crucified, died, and was buried. But is it not logical? If we met somebody who didn't share our faith, they would say, but God doesn't die, right? So no, God doesn't die. Well, you just said he died. No, I said the Word died on the cross. Yes, and is the Word God? Yes. So the Word died? Yes. But you just said God doesn't die. Yes. What's going on here? Nestorius felt deeply uncomfortable about this business. The heresy first started, interestingly enough, with his preaching on the Blessed Virgin Mary, not about our Lord. He first came to public uh, scandal or attention because he started to proclaim, he said, let no man call Mary Theotokos, meaning uh, God-bearer, or as we say in, in English, mother of God. Tokain is literally to bear in the sense of bearing a child. So let no man call Mary Theotokos. Why? Because God doesn't have a mother. Everybody knows that. You can call her the mother of a man, or the man Jesus, or you can call her the mother of the Christ, because that simply means the anointed one, the king in Israel, but you can't call her the mother of God, because God has no mom. Census Fidelium, once again, upset. People did not like this. Even if they could not directly explain why this was wrong, the church had called Mary the mother of God from at least, we have record, the time of origin, which will take us to the early 3rd century, if not before. And all of a sudden comes this fellow, much later, who says, no, nobody can do this anymore. You can't call Mary, and he's patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, nobody can call Mary the mother of God. The faithful rightly sense that something has gone astray here. But putting the finger on it's a little bit harder. You know that's also why the council that responds to him is at Ephesus, yes? Because Ephesus is Mary's hometown. The tradition is that after our Lord puts Mary in the custody of Jesus, they dwell in Jerusalem for a while, but then St. John takes her to Ephesus. So they have the council there, because you're going to go back to the most ancient apostolic traditions to sort this business out. That's why the council's there. Um, he continued with strange manners of speaking. He would carefully separate out how he spoke of Jesus and the Word. So I give you a fabricated example. This is not a direct quote, but it would work like this. John 10, the raising of Lazarus. Jesus spoke to Martha and Mary about Lazarus. The word knew that Lazarus had already died. Jesus said, roll back the stone, Lazarus, come out. The word raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said, untie him. You see the little funny dance that we're doing here? Like we're going back and forth, almost as if it were between two people. But you don't think of it as two different people. But he very carefully, if it was divine activity, a divine power, that would be the word. If it was a human activity, him weeping, walking, talking, eating, that would be Jesus. But never the other way around. Yeah. Continued. We worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and we co-worship Jesus. Oh, that sounds super weird, doesn't it? <laughs> and sometimes just simply say that Jesus and the Word are one and the other. One person and another, we would say, but he just says one and the other. Here's the problem. Christians were rigged out because they intuitively grasped the mystery that Nestorius did not, namely that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and not two persons, but one. And that's what underlies our way of speaking. We can say this. The Word died on the cross. Jesus created the world. God comes to us in the Eucharist, and that's fine. If people don't share our faith, we might have to explain to them precisely what we mean, but it can be done. Because the same one, not any other subject or person, that made the world died on the cross. No other person but him. I give you an example. This is sometimes called the communication of idioms, which sounds all technical. Uh, an idiom is something that's distinctive of just one person or region or usage. So I gave you an example. Y'all is idiomatic English. If someone says y'all, you go, you're a southerner. Yes? When we speak in these ways, like the word died on the cross. What we do is we use the subject. You've got to go back to your English textbook. Subject of the sentence has a name that reminds us of one of the two natures. So if I say the word, you think of the divine nature. Okay? The predicate says something about that person, but with reference to his human nature. The word died on the cross. That's the thing that Nestorius does not like. Do you see what I'm saying there? 
The subject seems to indicate the same person by virtue of one nature, but the predicate applies to another. You can do that, you just have to keep it straight in your head. It's only possible, however, if you have one person possessed of two natures. I give you a simple example. Father Steve, if you're watching this, this one's for you, because I've used this example for like 10 years. This person does not have two natures, but he does have two powers. Sometimes we call a habit a second nature. So this is an analogy, but I give you, I give you this example, which is a true example. I can say of someone, the nuclear engineer absolved me of my sins. Which sounds awfully weird on the first blush, does it not? But it is true, and it did happen. Because I know someone, Father Steve, who was a nuclear engineer in the Navy, and then later had his vocation to the priesthood, was ordained, heard my confession, absolved me of my sins. And if you know that, that one and the same person, Father Steve, is both possessed of nuclear engineering power and priestly power, you have no confusion about how this is working out. And the statement is true. He who is the nuclear engineer also absolved me of my sins. One person, two powers. We do the same thing. And this is what Nestorius didn't grasp. We do the same thing intuitively whenever we make these communication of idiom statements. Jesus created the world. It's true. He who is Jesus, no other person, created the world. You know? One person, two natures. At the bottom of his strange manner of speaking was a strange manner of thinking. And to respond to that, St. Cyril of Alexandria uh, led the fight against Nestorius that eventually became uh, part of the profession of faith in the Council of Ephesus. He gave us the expression, union according to a person, because that's what Nestorius is missing. He has the complete natures, but no union. Uh, neither an extrinsic union of wills, nor partwise composition, Frank in Christology, nor mixing or blending of natures, but rather two distinct natures in one divine person. So maybe we do questions? I didn't hear your last talk. I'd like you to define the word heresy in terms of what we're talking about. How would you, how would you define that word simply? Yeah, um, the root of the word is someone who makes his choice. Um, so someone becomes a heretic when they are uh, condemned by an ecclesiastical authority for their teaching and they choose to persist in it anyway. Uh, so that's, that's the root of it, right? The, the, the matter is that they have departed from the teaching of the church, the faith as the church has always proclaimed it. You can't be a heretic without that. Some people call that material heresy. I find that term deeply misleading because, frankly, everyone always is a little bit messed up with getting their catechism right. And, uh, uh, but the essence of it is they've made their choice. They've been condemned by an ecclesiastical authority, and they go, I don't care. I'm keeping on doing my thing. Is it an individual, or is it a, from a, uh, an established church? Well, I mean, typically this starts with an individual. Sometimes, like Arius, they ball up a movement. Uh, and if they get big enough, the usual form of a condemnation and anathema is, if anyone whomsoever says, insert the error here, let him be anathema. Once that's been proclaimed, if you know that, and you go and proclaim or teach that, then you join the ranks of heretics. So the first guy usually is the one that gets it boilerplate defined. Then you could, you know, and then that sign is posted over the exit door of the Catholic Church. You know, if you, if you, if you teach this, if you support this, proclaim this, just know that means that you are no longer part of the Catholic faith. And sometimes that's how groups or denominations start, right? Arius had bishops behind him. So you said that this story is that Mary was the mother of God, that don't all the heresies tonight say that? <laughs> yeah, that's true, right? Uh, for, for, this is why um, for some people, Mary, if some people who are not Catholic, Mary is, they don't understand our preoccupation with Mary, right? Um, but I think there are so many things in the doctrine of Mary correctly understood that are touchstones of orthodoxy. Um, and this might be a very good example of this, right? 
the modalist would have to say that she's the mother of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Arians would have to say that she's the mother of some meatball that was adopted or animated by the Logos. Uh, so a very, very good point. Um, that in I mean, every doctrine about Mary is ultimately a doctrine about Jesus and our redemption, right? She wouldn't want us to hold her up in any way that was ever anything but directly subordinate to her son's mission. That's why sometimes people say the rosary is a meditation, like on the, like the life of Mary. Or I'm like, no, don't say that. It's a meditation on Jesus as seen through the eyes of Mary because she's like the perfect receiver of the Christian mystery, right? So, yeah, very, very good, very well said. I mean, this is, this is why it upset people. The doctrine initially was about Mary being Theotokos, but everyone understood that if you messed with that, you were messing with the core doctrine of Jesus Christ. Thank you very much, Dr. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.